morning. Welcome to the second service today. And uh, every one of these sections have got a dollar. I gave every section. What I want you to do is I want you to pass that dollar to everybody in your section. Make sure that dollar gets passed. When it gets to the end, if you need to, pass it back up. But I want everybody to pass that dollar in every section. I'll tell you what it's all about in a minute. So uh, you get to touch a dollar today. Uh, uh, We've been talking about the book of Acts. Teresa did an awesome job last week speaking to us in the book of Acts. And uh, it was just a great sermon all the way around. I'm so proud of the preaching team and the great job that they're doing together. It's been awesome. And uh, so I want to start off, and there's no way I can preach on two chapters uh, of uh, Acts. Uh, And I just felt as I started going through the book of Acts that it's not that important that I give you a play-by-play of the court case because that's kind of boring to uh, do a play-by-play of the court things that happened. But I do want to paraphrase what happened. And uh, I want you to see that they had brought Paul up on bogus charges like they did Peter. They had brought uh, Paul up on bogus charges. And uh, he, uh, he tells them uh, that... Uh, the Sanhedrin there in uh, Acts 24, 20 through 21, the Jewish council. Uh, he, he tells them, he said, if I've done anything wrong, he said, do we detect a bit of holy sarcasm as Paul closing statement? And this is the longest speech that Paul gives uh, that uh, Dr. Luke, uh, Luke uh records this is you know the other one was long when the guy fell asleep and fell out the window and, and killed himself and then Paul went and resurrected him uh that was a big one but this this speech is even longer so that's why I only asked for two songs today and in you in your Paul when he was fixing to give his speech he said now, y'all gonna have to be patient with me I got a lot to say and so I'm telling you today if, if it took Paul a long time to say what he needed to say it's going to take me a little while to say what I need to say today and so be patient Uh, But he said, if I've done anything evil, it is probably this. I reminded the Jewish council of the great Jewish doctrine of the resurrection. See, the the Jewish temple, that big giant temple on the top of the hill in Jerusalem, that temple, they were on the buy. You know what that means? They they got paid off quite a bit. And uh, they started selling turtle doves and selling all different kind of stuff to... uh, for people to have a sacrifice. They were wrong there. They would uh, rip people off. And you know, they would let all kind of people come to the temple because they wanted the money. They let the Gentiles come to the temple. They were uh, prostatized Gentiles. Now they kind of believed in a little bit of the Jewish stuff, but they didn't get to come in the temple. They sat outside the temple because they gave money to the temple. Then there was the, uh, they was the Samaritans them old dogs, you know, they could kind of sit in the back somewhere as long as they give some money. And then, of course, there was the women. The women sat back there with the, the dogs, the Samaritans, the Gentiles. They sat back there in the back, you know, as long as they uh, supported the temple and give the temple. And then the Sadducees, the Sadducees, you know, the Sadducees didn't even believe like the Jews believed, but because they would come and give to the temple, you know, they took the money. And so the whole temple was on the buy. And so here's what Paul says. He said, If I've done anything evil, it's probably because I reminded the Jewish council of the great Jewish doctrine of the resurrection, which is something they didn't discuss anymore because they didn't want to offend 
the Sadducees. See, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were Sadducee. That's how you can remember them. They did not believe in the resurrection. And so uh, Paul is accused of being a troublemaker. Everywhere that Paul went, they, one of two things happened. There was either a riot or a revival. Either a riot or a revival took place when Paul went out to speak. And uh, so uh, he was being accused of being anti-Jewish and anti-Roman. They said, you know, you shouldn't even been in the temple. What you're doing in the temple, you've already been a troublemaker before. And he said, no, I didn't say anything in the temple. I went in the temple to bring some money to give to the temple from the Gentiles. He knew they loved money. And he said, that's the only reason I was in the temple. I was bringing a love offering from the Gentiles. See, Paul said, I've been called to the Gentiles. I keep my place. God, through the Holy Spirit, called me to minister to the Gentiles, and that's what I'll do. Now he's standing before Felix, and Felix uh, has this foolish attitude, and this is in Acts 24, 23 to 27. Uh, he certainly could not plead ignorance to the fact because it says that Felix was well acquainted with the way. Now, the way is the church. That's what they called him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And so these people, before they were given a name as church or church of God or whatever name they was eventually given, they were called the way. They were called the way. And so they said Felix uh, was well acquainted with the way. He understood what they were all about. His wife, Drusilla, sounds like something out of Cinderella, don't it? Drusilla... <clears throat> was a Jewish, perhaps kept him informed of the activities among her people. Uh, as a Roman official, he would carefully, if privately, investigate these things. He saw the light, but he preferred to leave in darkness. Now, when Paul was giving his speech, the Holy Spirit convicted Felix, and he saw the light. He saw the light, but he walked out of there in darkness. Felix saw what Paul was talking about. He was kind of convicted, and he decided to say, well, Paul, I tell you what, we're going to keep you in jail. We kept him in jail actually two years, but we're, we're, not going to, we're going to let you be kind of on house arrest. As long as you've got another prisoner uh, chained to you, uh, you can go about the house, do whatever you need to do. You can have visitors come. They can help you write letters. They can bring you food. I'm going to make it as easy on you as I possibly can because he felt a little bit convicted at what uh, Paul had told him through the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. It's not enough for a person to know the facts about Christ. It's not just a head knowledge uh, or have an emotional response. He was touched. He kind of walked out of the room and he told Paul, I'll, I'll call for you later. Uh, he was emotionally uh, touched by Paul. He, he, must have, uh, he was thinking about repenting, but, but you can't just have an emotional or a head response to the, the message of Christ, he must be willing to repent of his sin and trust the Savior. Uh, John 5 and 4 said, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And so here's the thing. Here's what Paul is saying. He's presenting the truth. People are falsely accusing him and they're telling lies on him. Nothing like today in our society today, nothing like it. And so his wife, Drusilla, she knew quite a bit you know, she was this woman, she knew all about the way. She wanted to hear Paul, for after all, her family had been involved in the way for some time. They were involved in getting rid of the way. For Drusilla, Felix's wife, her great-grandfather, 
tried to kill Jesus when he was little. She attempted to kill Jesus when he was little. That's in Bethlehem, Matthew 2. Her great uncle killed John the Baptist. Philip's wife, Drusilla, her great uncle killed John the Baptist, had him beheaded, wanted his head on a platter, and mocked Jesus. Luke 23 and 6 through 12, Acts. Then we go back to Acts 12, 1 and 2. And her father was responsible. Drusilla's father was responsible for killing the apostle James. So she didn't have too good of a record there. And, uh, but Dr. Luke was giving us only three points of Paul's sermon. And he says, Paul is telling them that they must seek after righteousness. They need to repent of their sins and they need to seek after God's righteousness. They need to learn self-control. She needed to learn self-control. She was Felix's third wife, plus they'd done all this other bad stuff. And Paul was telling them that judgment was coming upon them. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you start telling people you're going to have to get right with God, if you start telling people you need to get your life under control, and you start telling people that judgment is coming, somebody's going to hate you for it. Somebody's going to hate you for it. But that was the gospel. Paul wanted to keep going to these different courts. He had pleaded to every court that he could possibly go to because Paul wanted to tell his story that once they heard the story of the gospel, they had no excuse after that. The first, they had to do something about yesterday's sin and they had to seek after righteousness. In 1973, in college, I'd read a book uh, I'd read a book when I went to college with my first sermons at this big church when I was in college was the book by Carl Menninger written in 1973, one of the world's leading psychiatrists at that time published this sterling book and the name of the book and the name of my sermon to that big church was Whatever Became a Sin. Whatever Became a Sin. He pointed out that they, the very word sin has gradually dropped out of our vocabulary. The word along with the notion we talk about mistakes now, and we talk about weaknesses and inherited tendencies. We talk about faults and errors, and, but we do not face up to the fact of sin. People are no longer sinful. Phyllis McGinley said, the American writer and poet, they only are maybe immature, or they're underprivileged, or they're frightened, or they are particularly sick. But... A holy God demands righteousness. That's the bad news. Yet the good news is the same holy God provides his own righteousness to those who will repent and trust in Jesus. Romans 3, 21 through 26. We can never, by our own righteousness or good works, make it to heaven. We can never, by our own righteousness or good works, make it to heaven. We can be saved only through Christ's righteousness made available by his finished work on the cross. When Paul told him that, it made him mad. Number two, he said, you're going to have to deal with your, your you're going to have to get you under, you got to get under control. You're out of control. Not like our world today. Our world's not out of control, is it? We must do something about today's temptation. Man can control almost everything but himself. Here were Felix and Drusilla, prime illustrations of a lack of self-control. She divorced her husband and became Philip's third wife. And they were all after power. They were all after money. She had abandoned the Ten Commandments of Mount Sinai. 
Felix was an unscrupulous official who did not hesitate to lie if it benefited him. And he would even murder people in order to stay in power of his enemies, to be in charge of his enemies, to promote himself. Self-control was something neither of them had much to do with. So corrupt government. We got a corrupt church up on the hill in Jerusalem. We got a corrupt government. Third, Paul said, judgment day is coming. We must do something about tomorrow's judgment. Perhaps Paul was telling Phillips and Drusilla that they needed to get right with God. Jesus Christ is either your Savior or your judge. Jesus Christ is either your Savior or your judge. And so when Paul confronted them with this message, it almost calls Phillips to give in. But how could he give in to this called the way when Drusilla had done all, you know, Drusilla had done all these, her family, whole family was against the way. And so maybe he felt trapped or in his position of power, but he was literally convicted. But he said, I may talk to you later. And he walked out of the room. He was under the conviction. And Paul knew he was. But there's no record that Felix ever come to know Jesus Christ. Also, when Paul presented it to King Agrippa, King said, thou almost persuadeth me to believe. But he, there's no record that he ever was saved either. And here's the thing. Paul was telling them in a very easy way. He was telling them that I used to be where you are. In the great movie Braveheart, he stands up there in his blue face and red face and he declares that, you know, what we do today, whether we come off that battlefield alive or dead, what we do today is going to matter to our children and our grandchildren. It's going to make a difference. And he makes that great speech as he walks back and forth. Later in that movie, there's a statement that is said. He tells them, he said, you know, people don't follow titles. They follow courage. They don't follow titles, they follow courage. Last week when Teresa preached here a wonderful message, during the message she had Michael King come up and give his testimony. He come up and I, first service I sat right over there, second service I sat right back there. When he gave his testimonies, it was a testimony of courage. The Holy Spirit was here in such a mighty way that there was not hardly a dry eye in the building. I sat back there and I saw people wiping their eyes, men and women wiping their eyes because a young man had the courage to tell where his life was. He told about his childhood wasn't very pleasant, wasn't a great childhood really. When he was 17, something very unpleasant happened to him. He was a victim. He told about being that feeling that awfulness and, and being a victim and going through what he went through. Then he went and, and he served in the armed forces, saw things he never wanted to see before. He come home and he said the only thing that he could do is the, 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 the guilt, the condemnation, the pressure, uh, uh, the, the pressure of what he went through. He told all about this. But you know what he did? Instead of being and remaining the victim, he decided to turn to Christ and he said, there was a day and a time. It's like a light clicked on. And he said, I said, 
I'm going to be in church. I'm going to pay my tithes. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to do what is right. And I'm going to take charge of my life. I'm out of control. He said he was drinking. Is that right, Michael? Drinking, carrying on, doing things just to, to get it out of his mind. It's when he really, the light come on. If I'm going to be serious about God, I've got to be serious about God. That was a courageous moment, and it touched hearts. It was a, a, a moment of repentance. And so last night in the middle of the night, most of the message I already had done, but about, I tell you about my 3 o'clock experiences, about 3 o'clock, I really believe that instead of going through this long discourse on Paul, God led me to this part of the message. This was the message that Paul was giving out. This was why he was hated. This is why he was despised. But in Acts 17.30 said, In past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And I, as last night I was thinking, God, please forgive me for not preaching on repentance more often. For a while now, I've talked about, well, you know, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. Just believe. Just, you know, if you just believe on him, that's part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. The other part of the truth is you must repent and believe. There is no salvation without repentance at all. Paul continues faithfully, relentlessly, presenting the challenge of followers of Jesus Christ and those, to those aristocrats in Athens, they were all worshipers of idols. And so he told them they were not to think of God as an image made of gold and silver and stone. He said, you know, he said, you've been serving these idols. And he said, it's sheer ignorance. It's ignorance. He says, as the first Christian missionary to go to them and bring them the truth, God has been overlooking this ignorance that you have. He tells them, in other words, God had not sought to, uh, you know, for a flood or any kind of judgment to come upon them because they were ignorant. They were outside of Israel. They had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and not yet come, hadn't known what they uh, were really doing. And they would have been in this temple. They had been sacrificing to their statutes. And God passed by it all and even blessed them in that day. Uh, he gave them health, he gave them food, happy marriages, wonderful culture, achievements, literature, architect, and all this in this beautiful city. But Paul looks him in the face and he said, but now, he says, but now, he says, now things have changed. You have heard about Jesus Christ and him crucified. You have learned that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his son in, into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That truth requires a response. Once you've heard the gospel, you are under obligation from that point on to respond to the good news. Felix did not respond, and he lost his soul, as far as we know. King Agrippa did not respond. The discovery of the truth puts us under an obligation to respond to it. First of all, in our own hearts and lives, he is a living creator who has spoken in times past to our fathers through the prophets. But now he has come very, very close. He's come to earth. He's come as born in a manger. He walked with us. He talked with us. He speaks to us by his son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, so we are under obligation to respond. What will we do? 
The apostle tells us, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God requires a change in our direction. That's what repentance is. God requires a change in our value system. God requires a change in our attitudes and our affections and our convictions. A new sorrow for sin, a new hunger and thirst for right living. To trust in Jesus Christ and the determination from now on to do his will. He said, you pray, thy will be done on earth in my life as being done in heaven right now. It means turning from unbelief and keeping God's commandment. That's what repentance is. The theme of repentance was not a new thought. Uh, John the Baptist preached to the nation of Israel. God sent them a prophet after 400 silent years. John the Baptist come and he was considered a wild man. He lived out in the wilderness. He ate uh, locusts and honey. And John's message was used to win thousands and turn thousands of people back to God. And they were baptized in the river Jordan because of John's message. John was the forerunner and a herald preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. Then the people who had not appreciated John's clarion call for repentance, they went out to hear Jesus, thinking maybe this, this nice guy, the little Cartmer boy's son, you know, he would be real nice and gentle to everybody. They went out to hear Jesus preaching and expected him to tell about God's love and how wonderful God was in his wonderful life, and he did. But Jesus' first words were identified with John. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. The kingdom was at hand because the king was at hand. And his words were a call to repentance. So now we got God the Father sent the, the last of the Old Testament prophets, John, and he preached repentance. We've got Jesus, God's son, going and he preaches repentance. Then we have later, God sends his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And Peter gets up and what does Peter preach? Peter was called to the Jews. Peter gets up and he preaches repentance. That they must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized for the remission of their sins. So we got the Old Testament. We got, we got John sent by God. We got Jesus. We got the Holy Spirit. The Trinity has never changed their message. The message has always been and will always be there is no salvation unless we repent. Paul preached to the, Peter preached to the Jews. Paul preached to the Gentiles. And now he stood there in Athens and Jews and he, Gentiles, he says, repent. Repentance is a central theme of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel without the keynote of repentance is an inadequate, deluded gospel. And often deluded substance do more harm than the strong stuff that they're replacing. Someone who is a stranger to repentance is a stranger to God's gospel. So let me remind you what God requires when he addresses you in the theme of repentance. Because repentance is not a suggestion, rather a commandment that comes from the king of kings. It is addresses to all men. And it comes to every person and every nation in the whole world and throughout human history. So God is saying to you at this very moment, however moral or immoral you might be, you've got to repent. Every man and woman, what does it mean? I'll explain that in this next section. You've got to be, start off by being honest with yourself. You've got to be honest with yourself. 
The truth will set you free. I might be able to be such a great orator if I really tried and, and be a teacher and, and speak with the tongues and men of angels. But I can't help a liar. I might could be a great counselor and I could counsel people with broken and ruined lives and with every sort of sexual sin and cheating and breaking laws, you name it. I could probably help them a little bit, but if, if a person in trouble tells lies about himself, I can't help him. I, I think about the grace of God. I, I've been able to help many people make amends and set their lives on a new path, but I don't know that I've ever in my entire ministry been able to help a liar. Now, I believe that lying has almost become a non-issue in our society today. Everyone lies, it seems, and they lie all the time. It's almost as if it's not a sin any longer to lie to some. It's like Carl Manager in 1973, whatever happened to sin, we might ask today, whatever happened to telling the truth? The Bible said in the last days that truth would fall in the street, that people would not endure sound doctrine, that people would not listen to the truth, and yet the truth is the only thing that can set any of us free. Perhaps it's a sign of the most postpartum relativism, the notion that there is no absolute truth, and if there's no absolute truth, there's no absolute error, and so people have come to accept that lying isn't wrong and telling the truth isn't even essential anymore. Today, people lie about everything. Our politicians lie all the time. It don't matter what party they're from. It seems like they lie all the time. They'll lie under oath. It don't matter. They'll say the machine ain't right. So it's easy to tell lies. I want you to understand where the root of all lies come from. The Bible said that lies come from the devil. The devil is the father of all lies. Jesus is truth. The devil's a lie. So it's easy to tell where they come from. Or perhaps it's just the fulfillment of the depravity of man, that man does not grow wiser and smarter. Man becomes more depraved as time goes on without God. Romans 3.13 says their throat is an open grave and they use their tongue to deceive. He said in the last days there'd be a deceiving spirits that would come and many people would be deceived because of the lies. Certainly we, we all know how people routinely lie to cover up their sins. But then you can't, seem to help them. You, you can help anyone struggling with any sort of sin as long as they will tell the truth. But you can't help a liar because you can't trust anything that they say. His repentance is deeper than a murmuring, I'm sorry I got caught. True repentance always involves coming clean about what you did and coming clean to God about it. Coming clean means owning up to the whole pattern of the wrongdoing. Not just to the thing you happen to get caught doing. God desires truth in the inward parts in Psalms 51 and 6. And it took a while, but David finally found truth in his inward heart. He had sinned against God. He had done wickedness. And after repenting, he became a man after God's own heart. But as long as he lied, as long as he covered up, as long as he had people killed to cover up his lie, he did not prosper. For most of us, the continual battle to be transparent in all our dealings, especially when we have sinned, because it's so easy to cover up. Lying has almost become the non-essential thing today. I can't get this statement out of my mind. You can't help a liar. As long as a liar is telling lies, you cannot trust anything they say. 
It's like an old observation. If a liar says he's telling you the truth, can you believe him? It shows how difficult it is for people to take personal responsibility for anything in our society. We live in a culture where people, they haven't sinned, they've been victimized. A culture that rewards us for blaming others. In one of the school massacres in the USA, the gunman left a note behind saying, you made me do that. That's a cheap and easy way out of not dealing with your own self. It's easy when we've done wrong to say everybody else does it. Everybody cheats on their spouses. Everybody else yells at their children. Everybody breaks a promise here and there. Everyone lies a little bit. Everyone uses bad language. Everyone picks up something and slips it in their pocket every once in a while. I want my dollar back, folks. Everyone covers up their sin. We live in a society that encourages us to make excuses, but most of us don't need any encouragement to make excuses. We were born with the ability to pass the buck. Now you know why you passed the buck this morning. I wanted every one of you to, to, to stand here today or sit here today fully guilty that at one time or another in your life you passed the buck. So we've all passed the buck. We've all passed the buck. True repentance is being honest with the fact that we passed the buck. How many of you passed the buck today? How many had passed the buck many times before? The second thing, you got to remember the fall of your father, Adam. We all, we all are chips off the old block. What our first parents did, we do. It all goes back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. The serpent came to Eve and sweet-talked her into eating the fruit. She offered some to Adam, and he didn't challenge what she was doing. He ate the fruit too, and knowing full well the consequences of his action, and then the whole world changed, and it became cold and dark, and there were shadows and wild beasts and thorns everywhere. The children hated one another and quarreled and even killed one another hadn't happened before sin east of eden became a very unfriendly place every then it said fear entered the human heart for the very first time it's amazing all the bad things people do out of fear when adam and eve heard god walking in the garden in the cool of the day they hid from their father god sin had changed everything where once they talked with god freely now they hid in the forest, lest their sin be discovered. When we quit talking to God, we know that there's sin in our life. We were born knowing how to pass the buck. At length, God called out to Adam. Where are you? Adam answered and said, I hid myself. I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? Then the dreaded question came. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Adam is cornered now, caught red-handed, stripped of all of excuses. He knows that God knows. Adam does what men usually do. He passed the buck. He answered a classic, in a classic form of evasion is what we do most of the time. We change the subject. We evade. The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from, fruit from, the, tree, from the tree, and I ate it, Genesis 3 and 12. Do you get that? The woman you put here with me, Adam passed the buck twice. First, it was the woman. Then it was the woman you put here. God, 
Lord, it's actually your fault. You put the woman here. I didn't have that problem with the animals. You put this woman here, and, you know, she's all gorgeous and pretty and everything. And, you know, and, and, you know if I wouldn't have ate the fruit after she ate the fruit, then she would have been mad at me. And then if she was mad at me, then, you know, when it come bedtime, she would have a headache, and then we wouldn't procreate. And, you know, that we post appropriate and, you know, get a lot of people on the earth. And, and so, God, I just thought I was doing your will by doing what she said because we need to procreate. You know that. Isn't it funny how we rationalize? Say rationalize real, real slow. Rational lies. Lies. She wasn't, you know, he could say she wasn't my idea. She's your idea. Of course, I like her and everything. She's pretty and everything. But, you know, she's the reason. The Bible's telling us something very significant in the very first book of the Bible. It is our nature to deny our own guilt and to try to shift the blame to others. That's what the first part of Genesis 3 is. It's all about. It's no coincidence that the first sin led to the first cover-up. The first disobedient led to the first denial. See, the wages of sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. The first trespass, trespassing led to the first buck passing, and there was no repentance. In the thousands of years since, nothing has really changed. Human nature is the same. Passing the buck is part of the, the blame. It's a spiritual bloodstream deal. We do it now because of our father, Adam. We are Adam's children. We are a part of the Adam's family. In Adam, we live. In Adam, we refuse to take responsibility for what we've done. In Adam, we are strangers to repentance we wouldn't want to make anybody feel bad now. Adam established a pattern. We are defensive, and that leads to disobedience, which leads to guilt, which leads to shame, which leads to fear, which leads to hiding, which leads to blaming others. You've got to learn from the Solomon's counsel, this great man, this smart man under the, under the sun, even in his earthly wisdom, he come to this conclusion in his thesis of life. The fundamental mark of true repentance is being able to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. Blessed is the man who can say those words because that man is on his way to spiritual health when he can say, I'm wrong. If you want a verse to go with that thesis, Proverbs 20 and 13 says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper. A nation that conceals its sins will not prosper. A family that conceals their sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. You see, what Solomon is saying, when we sin, we have two options. Option one is to conceal it, to cover it up. That means to cover it up, to make excuses, to rationalize, to pass the buck. But that, when that happens, we don't prosper. We don't prosper emotionally. We get torn apart with our goody conscience. In other words, Psalms 32 talks about what happens to us when we, don't, when we don't go to repentance. Our bones waste away and our strength is sapped away from us and we suffer physically and mentally because we conceal our sins. Nothing works right. Solomon says, whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. If you if you confess them and you renounce them, you will find mercy from God. He alone is the one who, who is merciful and seeks mercy. And, and mercy finds you when you repent. 
but those words are important. To confess means to own up to what you did. When you confess your sins, you are saying, yes, I did it, I know it, and I was wrong. To renounce your sin means taking step to break the destructive patterns in your own life. When you renounce your sin, you're saying, I've been walking in the wrong direction, down the wrong path, and I'm asking God to help me. I'm not going to walk that path. See, when I was growing up in school, it was the me generation. It was the hippie uh, me generation, and the TV started reflecting the attitudes of that generation. There was a show on the TV called The Fonz, Happy Days. And on Happy Days, there was this guy named The Fonz, and he'd go look in the mirror, and he'd go, well, I don't need to do nothing. I just put my... And like James said, the man that looked in the mirror of God's word and doesn't make the right correction, something's wrong with him. Looking in the perfect law of liberty and doesn't make any changes. And so one time they confronted Fonzie and he was absolutely wrong. And they said, you need to admit that you're wrong. And he goes, I am. I am. And he couldn't do it. He tried several times to say he was wrong. And finally he said, I'm not right. Those are hard words to say, but I'm going to tell you, not right is not the same thing as I am wrong. Sometimes we make excuses for subtle that we don't realize that we're doing. You know, husbands and wives, you get in an argument, that happens sometimes, and and you say, all I said was, buddy, you're in trouble, you say that. All I said was, Uh, what it means, Einstein, is that you're telling that person, all I said was, I made a, uh, you didn't say I made a big mistake. It implies that they are a mistake. It implies that you you have sane, logical, wise, and loving, and uh, the other person is the one that is a nut. When you use those four words, it's not my fault. I don't have a problem. Somebody else's problem. As long as you say that, there is no true repentance. How many marriages could have been saved if somebody would have had the grace to say, I am wrong? How many friendships could be repaired today if somebody could say, I was wrong? How many people has moved from church to church to church because they couldn't say, I am wrong, or that church couldn't say they were wrong? As long as you continue to say that, you can't be forgiven As long as you say that, your relationships will remain broken. As long as you say that, you will struggle with bitterness and resentment all the days of your life. As long as you say that, you will remain locked out of the abundant life that Jesus provides. As long as you blame others, your life will remain broken, fragmented. You'll never know holiness, wholeness, or mental, spiritual health. Jesus tells a story. He said there was this greedy tax collector in the temple of all places. A man who had ruined lives of many people. Some of them had been thrown into prison for not paying their money they demanded. These tax collectors was working for Rome. They could charge people any kind of taxes they wanted. As long as Rome got their money, they could get the overage. Families had been split up. Lives had become damaged desperately. Men had went to jail. And this sorry, low-down, no-good tax collector was the blame. 
And there he came. He was the blame. And there came a blessed period in his life when he saw his evil deeds and he realized that he had done what he had done and he was filled with remorse. Before America experiences revival, there's going to have to be an experiencing of remorse. So he went to the temple and there he hung his head and he beat his breast and he gazed at the dust at his feet feeling utterly unworthy of looking up to heaven. And all he could do was express his repentance. He had nothing else to offer God. He cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said God heard his prayer that very moment, at that very now, that very moment. God heard his prayer and justified him. In other words, God declared him righteous. I've often wondered, I know that 12-step program works. I know it works. There was a, a doctor and it didn't work. And then there was a minister and it didn't work. And you put the doctor and the minister together and it worked. People that were addicted begin to be not addicted. But I believe back years ago when it started, they understood some of the terminology that maybe they don't understand today. And one of those things is in the 12-step program, you gotta, you got to come clean. you got to be honest. And last night I wrote this down. You have to come clean to come clean. If you want to get clean, you got to come clean. You got to quit lying to yourself. You got to quit being the victim. You got to be brave and courageous like Michael was last week. He had a rough childhood, but at his age, a few years ago, it wasn't his mama, it wasn't his daddy, it wasn't his military service. He wasn't for some sorry person that victimized him. It was Michael standing in the need of prayer. It was Michael that wanted to do something about his life. It was Michael that wanted to do something about his family and his marriage. That took courageous courage. That's what it takes. It's not easy. That's why people go to a 12-step program. They get a few steps in and they leave. They don't want to confront the demons that exist there. They want to drink it away, smoke it away, drug it away, anything not to remember it anymore. Jesus said there was another man in the temple who was full of himself. Seems to be a lot of people full of themselves today. He felt he had no need to repent, and he disdained the repenting tax collector. But he was lost as a devil in a pit. So, what I'm saying today, you've got to learn to say, I have sin. I'm a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says. And God commands every single person in the world everywhere to bow before him and acknowledge it. In other words, to say to the Lord, I have sinned. The Bible said in the last days, he says, there's coming a day, that future judgment that he's talking about, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's just whether you're going to do it before time runs out. One way or another, you're going to do it. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the most moving story, I think, in the Bible about a young man that's like a lot of young men. He leaves his father's house. A familiar story. He wanted his inheritance. He wanted to leave the family estate and go out on his own. 
There he squandered his money and while living, partying for weeks and months and maybe a year or so, when the young man had spent all that he had, now he was friendless, he was broke, he was destitute. And here's a beautiful thing, he found himself. Sometimes we got to hit bottom before we find ourselves. He found himself in this desperate place, far from family support. He found himself. Although he was covered in the shame and drowning in the deep regret, he applied for a job with a farmer who put him working with pigs. And his wage was basically you could eat what the pigs eat. And he was hungry and he found himself ready to eat with the swine. And at the precise moment, the light came on in his brain. Paul was trying to explain to these religious leaders, he said, uh, let me tell you, I know what you are. I was one of them. I lived as a Pharisee. It ain't no life to live. I thought I was better than everybody else, but I wasn't. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, verses 4 through 11. Paul said there was a time that I didn't believe a lot of the stuff. And then Paul said, I was on this Damascus road and I saw the light. The light came on. He was enlightened. Once he was enlightened of his sin, he could not go down that road anymore. He said, the light, I saw a light. His old song we used to sing in church, it was written by a country guy. I saw the light. I saw the light. I wandered in darkness, aimless in sin. Then one day I saw the light. Hank Williams Sr. wrote that song. I saw the light. Paul said, I saw the light. Once you've seen the light, you can't unsee the light. He saw the light. He said, I heard a voice. That voice convicted me. He said, God had been dealing with me, Paul, but Paul had been resisting him, kicking against the goads. It's like a, you get somebody poking you with a stick, a goad. God was poking, but I wasn't obeying. I kicked all I could kick. He said, it was hard to be a transgressor. Philippians 3, 6, yet within his own heart, he certainly knew how far short he came from beating God's holy standard. Paul said, now I'm a minister called to the Gentiles. The word minister there, he uses very loosely. He actually uses a word that's called an under rower. It meant somebody on a galley ship, they put them under the deck there and they had these little holes and they would paddle out the side hole. And it was like just, they were the motor under the boat, one of the Rich people rode on top. They were a servant rowing the boat. Paul said, now I'm, I'm no big deal. I'm just a servant, a under rower for God. Paul said, I saw the Lord on the Damascus Road. And again, three years later, while in the temple, later the Lord appeared to him in Corinth and in Jerusalem, and he would appear to him again. It was a surprise to Paul after his conversion to hear the Lord was sending him. Him. Paul, God was sending him, the guy that killed Christians. God had a mission for him that God loved him. Paul said, I've been faithful. He said, I used to be not uh, very obedient, but in verses 19 through 21, I was not disobedient to this calling I've been obedient to this calling 
ever since. And I continue to be obedient until this day, verses 22 through 23. I didn't tell this story in the first service, but I had this man, gentleman in my church. He was a great pillar of the church. He was 88 years old, named F.F. Johnson. One of my first churches I pastored out of college. And he was like a giant of a man spiritually, and he'd been around the world. And one day he shared his testimony. His testimony really touched people, like Michael's did last week. He said, uh, my wife started going to this little revival meeting down the road, and I hated the fact that she was going to that little revival meeting down the road. And I told her she wasn't going anymore, and she told me that she was. And he said she would cook my food and lay out my clothes and she would do everything that I could ever want a woman to do. But she said, honey, I love you, but I'm going to church. And he said, come over here, honey. Let me give you a kiss before you go. And he was holding a knife. And he said he took that knife and plunged it in her dress and just ripped her dress that she was going to wear to church. He said back then people didn't have very many dresses. And she just kind of tied it up, and she went to church anyway. He said, it made me so mad I couldn't stand it. He said, that night when she come in, she come in kind of late from the revival meeting. And he said, I was laying in the bed facing inward. And he said, I was laying there, and I wasn't asleep. I was playing like I was asleep. And he said... She said her little prayer like she normally did every night before she went to bed. And she got in bed. And he said, I had my legs kind of drawn up. And he said, I kicked her clear out of the bed. And she hit the sidewall of the room. And he said, she crawled back over to the bed. She lifted up the cover. And she began to weep. And her salty tears fell on my feet. And I begin to cry, and I begin to weep, and I begin to repent. That little lady saved my soul. She saved my soul. Sometimes the hardest knock in your life is the one that will bring somebody to repentance. Your deepest, darkest, most painful thing that you've ever been through may be the thing that brings many to repentance. This young man had went pretty far away away from God, the prodigal. But the light came on. One day the light came on. Why didn't the light come on earlier? He saw the light. He saw that it was his own stupidity, that it wasn't his daddy's problem. It wasn't his brother's problem. It was his own self-destructive thing that he had done to himself. No longer would he pretend to be something he wasn't. That was the revelation of the light coming on. He saw what he had become. And more than that, he knew there was just one way back. The strange irony of the situation hit him like a ton of bricks. His father's servants were eating their field back home. Why the master's son was living with the pigs. I don't care who you are today in this building. You are the master's sons and daughters. You may not know it yet, but he died for you and you're his children. You may be in a far land, but you're his children. 
Then he thought to himself, I'm going to get away from these stinking pigs and I'm going back home. When I get there, I'm going to tell my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. With that, the young man got up, brushed himself off, gathered the two or three things he still had left, and he headed on that long journey back home. He was still about 100 yards from the door of the farmhouse when his father spotted him walking down the country lane. Before the young man knew what was happening, his father was running towards him, throwing his arms around him, crushing him and kissing him and saying, Welcome home, son. The son began to repeat the words that he had memorized all the way back at the pig pen. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cut him short. He would not hear that anymore. He shouted to his servants running. He said, now bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring, the signet family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and Find the fatted calf and kill it and call the neighbors and spread the good news. Tell everybody you see the, the son, this son of mine that was dead in Adam's sin. This son that is dead is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. No more sleeping with the pigs. This young man whom we call the prodigal son turned his whole life around with three simple words. I have sinned. How many marriages could have been saved if somebody had said, I am wrong? How many jobs could have been saved if somebody had said, I am wrong? How many people today are living in the pen pig because they're unwilling to say, I have sinned? How far down the gutter of this world will, will this nation go before someone says we have sinned as a nation? You know what we do, though? We try to clean ourselves up. We try to be presentable. We try to brush our teeth and comb our hair. But we still have pig dung under our fingernails. People know we've been fools and we've been with the swine. Jesus' parable is for everyone who's tried eating with the pigs. If you're ready to go home, I've got good news for you. The father is standing in the road waiting for you. His arms are open wide. He knows where you've been, but he's still waiting on you. The only thing that matters is for you to repent and come home. We've been talking this year about catechisms and the Apostles' Creed and one of the shorter catechisms, question 87, that churches used to have and have them memorize. Question 87, the shorter catechism asks, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after, endeavor after a new obedience. You see that phrase, apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. The man who truly repents believes that the Father will listen to him. 
He will be merciful and he will open the door to him. He will give him a job on the farm. He won't refuse him. He won't shout out, get back to your pigs. Because he knows the father's a good man. He's a good God. If you repent and turn from your sins, then you can start all over again. Why keep going down the same old road? All you got to do is say, Father, I've sinned. You know, you must know your greatest problem is unrepentance. The greatest problem in America today is not a party. It's unrepentance. Last night, a friend of mine, Dr. Ham, he, was, he sent me an instant message. He said, I just come from a revival over in Hendersonville, and I'm weeping. I said, what's going on? He said, I went to revival thinking that it was a real revival. And there was a so-called prophet of God that had the nerve to tell the congregation that if 40 people would give him $1,000, that God was going to bless them in some kind of supernatural way. And he said, my heart broke. With a nation so in need of revival, and they go to what? They believe to be a man of God. And he does that. He said, God help the church. But he said, on the other hand, Dennis, two weeks ago, I got invited to the White House. Directed by our Vice President Pence. He said, I saw the greatest move of God I've seen probably in 40 years. He said, we was at the White House and different people was praying. And one would come up and pray, and they prayed for the president, and they prayed for our country, and they prayed for the House and the Senate. They prayed for the military, and they prayed, and they prayed. He said, people begin to weep. Tears begin to roll down their faces in the White House. God's going to have a revival in this country. If the church will get right, it'll happen at church. If it won't, he'll get it going somewhere else but there will be no revival without repentance preachers have got to repent saints, leaders, deacons through Jesus Christ it is possible to be forgiven that's the good news now here's the bad news as long as you refuse to admit you've done anything wrong you can never be forgiven Therefore, you will stay like you are right now, unforgiven, unhealthy, fragmented, broken, confused, divided, locked inside the citadel of your own self-justification forever and ever as you are. And here's the thing. Now is the time. Procrastination is the thief, wrote Edward Young. English proverb, one of these days means none of these days. The most convenient season for a lost sinner to be saved is right now. Now the light has come on. Now you've heard the gospel. If you've never heard the gospel before, you've heard it today. Now. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Philip's foolish attitude, he had the foolish attitude toward God's word, thinking that he could take it or leave it. But God says now. Now commands all men everywhere to repent. When Felix was replaced, he left Paul a prisoner, but it was Felix who was really the prisoner. The governor's mind was enlightened. 
His emotions were stirred, but his will would not yield. The question today, you've heard the word today, will your will be changed? Where you say, not my will any longer, but thy will be done in my life. Not my will, but thy will be done in life. We used to sing, uh, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow the cross before me, the world behind me. The Christian way is not an easy way. But Paul said the way of the transgressor is much harder than the Christian way. I want you to help me sing this song in closing today. One of the first songs I remember. Into my heart. Into my heart. Come into my heart. Lord Jesus. Come in today. you make a commitment to God today you'll never pass the bug you don't have to pass the bug you don't have to cover up you've got a God that loves you just the way you are bring all your baggage to him for he cares for you today I'm going to come down if you'd like prayer today if the prayer team would come up dear Heavenly Father we thank you today I thank you that there is a repentance coming across our country I want it to be in our church. I want it to be in my life. I want to repent. I repent today openly before this congregation. I've preached way more about just believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I haven't often enough preached about the repentance. We must repent. We must declare that I've sinned. I've come short. God made a humility. May a desire to repent come clean, come upon this congregation. God, our world is dying in a cesspool of self-righteousness. God, may we humble ourselves and find you close and dear, running towards us with your love. In Jesus' name we pray.